Welcome to Lakeville. I'm producer Eric Sagan. Support for Lakeville comes from two places. Sponsors we genuinely love, and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in Lakeville, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash Podcast. Support for the podcast also comes from Elses. Elses is now welcoming you inside for good drinks, good food, and good conversation in the heart of the Plateau Montréal. Also sponsoring the podcast is Good Mix. Good Mix includes a wide range of prebiotic fiber, which promotes microbial diversity in the gut flora. You can get 15% off your next purchase of Good Mix at Amazon and at goodmixfoods.com by using the code LIKEFILL when you check out online. You can find links to our sponsors at our website, www.likefillpodcast.com. Without further ado, Here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode. Welcome to the Like Phil podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today, I have the great honor of finally uh, talking with Edward Slingerland, um, the author, author of a number of books. I've read two of them for today, uh, Trying Not to Try, and uh, the one that we're mainly focusing on, uh, Drunk, How We Sipped, Danced, and Stumbled Our Way to civilization. Welcome, Edward. Thanks for having me. Hey, so maybe you could just, uh, we could start off by you just introducing um, who you are to our audience. We have uh, audiences all over the world, some some academics, you know, a lot of people just, you know, curious people. Um, mm-hmm. So who are you? <laughs> <laughs> who am I? Yeah. Um, so I am a professor of philosophy at the University of British Columbia, but I'm also, I've been in at various times of my career in religious studies departments, Asian. I was previously in the Asian studies department here. So I work in a lot of different fields. My training is in uh, religious studies, philosophy, comparative religion. But in the last kind of 15, 20 years or so, I've been getting more and more into science, humanities, integration, and cognitive science of religion, uh, Big data techniques is applied to the humanities, um, cultural evolution, gene culture, coevolutionary theory. So uh, I'm an I'm an academic, but I'm in, involved in a lot of different different fields. Yeah, well, I mean, it seems in this day and age, <clears throat> I think it was probably always the case, but it seems like it's more the case today that if you're not pursuing a interdisciplinary strategy to try and understand human things. Uh, it's not just that, I mean, I think there was a time probably when you and I were in grad school, like in the 90s, um, when being interdisciplinary was in some circles sort of, I guess, fashionable. Um, in other circles, it was not. You were supposed to be very specialized. But these days, it's not a question of being fashionable or it's, like it's, it's a necessity. Like if you're not paying attention to what's going on in relevant fields, you will very quickly start talking out your ass, like just saying stuff that to people who know what they're talking about is absurd, you know, because you're just not yeah. you know, taking into account like some important information. Right? I think that's true. Um, but I don't think that actually matches the culture of academia or the incentive system in academia. So um, I don't think being interdisciplinary helps you in terms of standard 
um, academic prestige or promotion or hiring. Um, it's still pretty much in terms of the way departments, because higher every, all the stuff goes through disciplinary departments. And so, you know, the provost president level, everything's interdisciplinary, yay, science, humanities, integration, and awesome. Um, but they don't make the hiring decisions. They don't make the promotion decisions. Ultimately, it goes to the department. So, so I think things are still pretty much as conservative. They're slightly better, but they're not much better than they were when we were in grad school in the 90s. It's still, you know, you want to get a job. You got to do really, you got to do stuff that looks familiar to the people hiring you, which means, yeah. you know, <clears throat> same citing the same stuff, doing the same methods. And, you know, I have this problem where I work in so many different areas and I'm published, you know, I'm publishing in whatever my last few public, I'm in a philosophy department. My last few academic publications were in annual review of psychology, um, nature, um, effective science. <laughs> so I'm publishing mm -hmm. these journals that nobody on the committee has any idea what these are. Um, and I think that, that, I'm at a point in my career where it doesn't matter because I'm, you know, a full professor and, um, but it, it's, it's an issue because it, um, it affects the kind of advice you give younger people. I get contacted by people, young people who are going into grad school or maybe early years of grad school and they want to do interdisciplinary stuff. And it's hard to know what to advise them because it's, I'm not sure it's good career wise in academia. But I, the reason I do it is I think you're absolutely right that I don't think you can answer any interesting question about human beings without drawing from all the relevant fields. Yeah. And if you, and if you don't, you, regardless of your good intentions, I think you, you end up being, you know, the proverbial joke about the economists looking for the keys in the middle yeah. of the parking lot where the light is. Like you end up just thinking that, you know, everything that matters is what my subfield looks at, right? So this, yeah. the, the tools that we use are the tools that you should use and the, you know, the, the facts that are important to us are the ones. And, you know, that just <laughs> like so easily can, uh, can get you into a situation where you're saying something that people outside your field who have other relevant tools and techniques just looking go <laughs> what the fuck yeah. are they talking about like, like, yeah. you know and that's yeah. you know like i mean the obvious example in philosophy is the the heavy focus on on text and text being everything and text being well it's it's, it's sort of suspicious that that happens to be what philosophy feels like it's good at looking at like like why yeah. you know why why not look at some other things uh, I think it's, you know, this was not our design at all. Um, I've been wanting to have this conversation with you for a couple of years, actually. But um, it is rather fortuitous that we're having this conversation right after Health Canada just put out yes. these new, very, very strict um, guidelines, which have basically made, rendered people like my wife and I and like most of the people that we know uh, you know, alcoholics, basically, <laughs> like you are, yeah, yeah. are doing damage to each other. What do you think about this? I mean, it's, we I might as well, we might as well start there. Since it's, yeah, know. no, I've been getting a lot of, doing a lot of CBC interviews the last couple of weeks. Um, 
it's I think it's absurd, um, but it's a it's a really good example of what's wrong with our public policy making and our public health messaging. So when it comes to alcohol, it's uh, it's all through a purely medicalized lens. And it's all talked about purely in terms of risk mitigation. And that's just not how normal human beings make decisions about their lives. So, you know, from a purely medical perspective, you shouldn't drive a motorized vehicle. I mean, driving yeah. a car is really dangerous. Um, it's, you know, the net negative for your health is negative. But many people still drive cars because, you know, they, they're useful in some ways. And, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's probably best for your health to never leave your house except to, you know, go do a prescribed exercise routine and get a certain amount of vitamin D. Um, and yet people leave their houses and scuba dive and play tennis and do all sorts of stuff. So I just think it's um, the, the basing of a recommendation solely on, this risk factor is is short-sighted and it and the problem with that is that it makes pe- people at some level realize that and then they're just going to ignore the advice and it would be better to have i think um, recommendations that were reasonable because then you could actually probably shift people's behavior a little bit more yeah. so you know the <clears throat> in the case of alcohol there's you know things have changed so there was you know maybe 10 15 years ago you know, the alcohol industry, I think, was fighting this on the wrong battlefield. So there was a period when advocates of moderate consumption were playing the medicalized game. So they were like, okay, well, no, there are these health benefits, French paradox, cholesterol reduction. Um, and that was the wrong battle to fight because I think they were, they were going to, they were going to lose that battle and they have. So it does, the medical consensus is shifting to the point that it looks like um, there's there's probably little to no net physiological benefit to alcohol consumption. And it's probably overall bad for you in terms of liver damage and um, cancer risk and all these other things. Um, but that's, you know, it ignores the fact that there's all these benefits to alcohol. It's a cultural technology that we've been using for Twenty at least twenty thousand years um, all across the world, all throughout history, and if you ignore those benefits, you just have a really distorted view of um, of how how people should make decisions about dangerous dangerous things. Like because alcohol is a dangerous thing, but we have to look at it in its uh, full range of costs and benefits, and not just through this medicalized lens. Yeah, it's it's funny because you know people will say uh, that they're really worried about these, you know, AI dystopian futures where, you know, you tell the AI to make some paper clips and and that's the one metric that and it, it basically just you know destroys the whole world finding natural resources to make unlimited amounts of paper clips. But that's exactly the way that people who act like making your life be as as long quantitatively as possible and as cancer that that is the absolute maximum goal i mean it's it's sort of like all of nietzsche's worst fears about what he thought our (laughs) age like you know like in the joyful wisdom when he talks about you know leisure and idleness and he says you know uh, today people can't even go for a walk in the woods without 
you know, having an excuse, oh, I'm doing it for my health. <laughs> like right. you're, yeah. you're not allowed yeah. to like relax with friends without saying, well, you know, one owes it to one's health. Like, you know, this, this kind of in the same way that in a previous time, perhaps uh, a kind of a totalizing Christian vision, like a sort of Calvinism would have taken over a community and every single decision would have been subordinated to, you know, what would Jesus do or does this fit in with our vision? Now it's well, like, is it, is this the sign that you are a, saved a or secular. not? Yeah. 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 Oh, it's definitely, I mean, my, my dissertation was, was all about how modern health culture is basically a, a sort of a secular version of a kind of Protestantism that it, it's. Oh, uh, I have to read that because that's yeah. what my my next book is probably going to touch on that. Because I, oh, sweet, I, sweet. I, I, you know, I'm troubled by this this neo Calvinist yes um, attitude where you know everyone's trying to maximize their effectiveness all the time and, and everything's seen through the lens of, you know, is this increasing my lifespan? Is this making me more productive? Um, <clears throat> you know, these life hacks where I'm going to sleep for in two hour chunks because I've, you know, science has shown that optimizes your output and, <laughs> you know, I'll do sunrise yoga and, uh, you know, everything that goes into my body has to be, uh, organic and approved by you know this this body and it just it's like a it's a weird I think it answers this human this human desire for control yes and it, it's yes. just a, as you say a secular form of some of these old, older ascetic traditions it's a form of asceticism yeah um, but it's weird um, <clears throat> and I you know I for one if you know if someone told me okay if you know for you to enjoy wine with your meals for the rest of your life you're gonna lose a year of lifespan I'd be I'd be yeah, fine with where that do I right? sign? where do I <laughs> where sign, do I sign I up mean, for like, that yeah you know, who wants to live 91 years you know and never have a nice Chardonnay again so yeah, I'm gonna. The next book's gonna be more broadly about hedonism and our inability to just enjoy pleasure for pleasure's sake without having to justify it somehow. Um, I find the prohibitionists are are very. I mean, of course, humans are like this, but like they're very inconsistent on this score. So if you switch, if you switch to the topic of sex, and you say, because you know, if I talk to let's say one of my family members who are you know real fundamentalist christians and like hardcore and like they will say that you know what's wrong with uh and you know an older kind of like kind of hardcore catholic would say the same thing that what's wrong with homosexuality is that the purpose of sex is just reproduction and so therefore it should be not only straight sex only but only straight sex that is going to result in pregnancy right which of course if you say that to a typical kind of vegan urban progressive yeah. they will immediately go ha 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 that's so silly clearly sex has in our species very long ago transcended procreation and so it's still of course central to procreation but we we use sex in our species for so much more than just yeah. uh, so the, the the question is not uh, why is there homosexual sex the question is 
even in a more basic way, why do straight people have so much sex that could never possibly result in pregnancy, like sex right. after menopause, uh, sex during menstruation, you know, sex during pregnancy. So like we do sex a lot and clearly it's, it's for pleasure and bonding and, and social life. It's not just for reproduction. So the same people who will just nod their head in agreement with that and, you know, to turn on PBS and NPR, like yeah. they don't realize that like what they're saying about alcohol is just as absurd. Yeah, like it's yeah. exactly yeah. as absurd. <clears throat> yeah, it's absolutely. And I think it's in some ways more absurd because you know, and drunk. I point. I, I. One of the things I'm trying to debunk is this idea that alcohol or taste for alcohol is an evolutionary mistake. In the case of um, masturbation and non-reproductive sex, I think it is a mistake. So I don't think, um, you know, the fact that we still have sex uh, past menopause, you know, during menstruation, whatever, that we have homosexual sex, that we have all sorts of non wildly non-reproductive sex, um, is, is probably just because evolution doesn't care. Like that, the, all that non-reproductive sex is pretty non-costly. Um, it's, it's, um, the basic system we give, I give you this orgasm for doing the thing that I want you to do most, which is pass on copies of your genes to the next generation. That basic system works pretty well. Um, and, and essentially because it's a very costless thing, evolution can, you know, again, personifying evolution, it's just a blind uh, process, but it's helpful to use intentional language. Um, evolution can look the other way. It doesn't really care. Um, in the case of alcohol, though, it's it's actually quite costly behavior. Um, it really it probably is physiologically damaging. You've got people who have um, tendencies to alcohol use disorder um, for whom it's really dangerous to use alcohol. It can lead to all these social problems. It's quite economically costly. Um, so it that's it's actually even more the case that you need to see the functional benefits of alcohol. Because it's got to be paying for itself somehow in the, in the only currency that evolution cares about, which is functional benefits. Um, cause evolution pleasure can't be pleasure could be an important reason for us as humans, why we use alcohol, but it's not going to factor into any kind of gene culture coevolutionary story because evolution couldn't care less if we're, we're happy or not. Um, mm -hmm. so so it's, that's why you've got to see, even more so than the case of non-reproductive sex, you have to tell some kind of functional story about what alcohol is doing for us. Yeah, I I think back to when you know when we were teenagers, when we were young and stuff like that. I there's so many amazing experiences um, that I had with my friends and with bonding and with like you know, exploring sexuality for the first time and stuff like that, which involved um, drinking and in a really positive, great way. Like I, I, yeah. I've, my experiences have been sort of overwhelmingly, like if I had to throw out a number, just guessing at absolute minimum, 95% um, positive, at least if not, you know, if, if not considerably higher than that. Um, and they were, having to go through all of those really, really embarrassing, exciting, crazy, scary things, just stone cold sober, I think, you know, would have been much, much harder. 
And I wonder yeah. if there's some connection between the fact that, you know, the younger people today are drinking less on average than in the past. And they're also having like, they have way less friends than um, on average than was the case 20 years ago or 40 years ago or 60 years ago. And they also, they're having like, they talk about the sex recession that um, there's, they're having less. I wonder if there's some connection between those two things. Wait, what do you think? Yeah, possibly. Um, I'm not going to go on the record advocating for teen alcohol <laughs> use and sex, just in case you're, you know, any of my my dean is out there listening to this. Yeah. Um, but certainly, I mean, look, the there's a lot of ways humans have used alcohol. So we use it uh, as a anxiety and stress reduction. So. Uh, humans have always kind of used alcohol at the end of the day to unwind and and mark the transition, really important transition between you know the work day or the day of productive stuff and the time of relaxation and socializing. Um, it's got as I document drunk. There's there's probably two main things that alcohol is doing for us. Um, the first thing it's it's down regulating our prefrontal cortex. So the or the PFC. The, the PFC is a really important part of the brain, but it doesn't mature until like in your mid twenties, which is really weird. And um, it's, so it's the last part of a human being to develop. And I think that's significant. I think it suggests that there's a real evolutionary trade-off that is going on, which is why evolution's kind of slow walking the development of the PFC. It's, um, you know, doesn't fully lock in until you're in evolutionary terms, you know, kind of fully mature to mid twenties is kind of when you'd be an adult in most traditional societies. So the PFC is great for focusing on a task, uh, getting to work on time, uh, delaying gratification, suppressing, uh, inappropriate emotions or, um, you know, inappropriate desires. So it's, it's the center of what psychologists call executive function or cognitive control, but it, it interferes with, with some things. So one thing it gets in the way of is creativity. So this is why um, kids are much more demonstrably more creative than adults. So um, Alison Gopnik, a developmental psychologist at Berkeley has done this great work on uh, these problem solving tasks that require insight you can't just kind of reason your way A, B, C, D. You have to see, oh, I see how this works. You have to, you need a kind of um, lateral thinking insight. And kids are great at this. Four or five-year-olds can solve these tasks, no, no problem. And your ability to solve them just decreases as you age. And it, as I, in the book, I lay down the decrease in performance on this task against the uh, line showing the, the maturation of the PFC. So basically, as we get better at focusing, we get worse at seeing, <clears throat> you know, remote possibilities or new things. And so that's one of the things alcohol has been doing for us as a, as a species is, is helping us, you know, relax our mind and see new possibilities. And that's going to be important at all sorts of life stages um, and just important for us as a species, because unlike any other species, we're dependent on technology we're dependent and therefore we're dependent on innovations we're constantly having to revamp our tool sets or um, we're competing with other groups that have 
maybe better tool sets than us, and then they can do better in the environment. Um, so it's been a crucial tool for helping us be more creative. But then also the, what you hinted at is this, this pro-social, social bonding, uh, social interaction benefit. So we, if your PFC is down-regulated, you're going to be more open and less able to bullshit me. <laughs> you're going to mm-hmm. be the things, the things, things you say are going to be actually probably more honest than if you, your PFC is monitoring everything you're saying. <clears throat> and so people are more uh, trustworthy when they've downregulated the PFC a bit. Um, it's also the other thing ethanol is doing is ramping up uh, these pro-social chemicals. So serotonin, um, endorphins, which just make us like ourselves more. They like, they put us in a better mood, right? Where we like ourselves more, we're more confident. We like other people more, we find them more appealing. And so it's this been this crucial tool that humans have used to overcome social awkwardness, um, overcome distrust, potential distrust, uh, overcome maybe um, competing interests or potential hostility. And that's why it's you really, anytime you see humans getting together and needing to uh, bond or trust each other or just relax around each other more, you see ethanol coming out. And if, if in the few cultures that don't have alcohol, there's some other chemical intoxicant they're using that serves exactly the same function. You see it appearing at exactly the same times. So yeah, it suggests there's this really important. Yeah. And I, I love how you, you point thing. out in your book as well that, um, cause I, I was like, Oh my God, is he going to mention that? And you totally did. <laughs> the fact that cultures that have sort of declared war on intoxicants, usually they just have other, like I was a Pentecostal, christian oh yeah a teenager, you, guys are really, went, you guys are really good at doing yeah that. yeah and, and, and chemically yeah. <laughs> you're a hundred percent correct that they basically use repetitive um singing standing um like breathing to induce a kind of a manic euphoric state where like you suddenly the pfc and you know, people are speaking in tongues and all this stuff. yeah so, yeah so whether they're doing it you know it's uh as you put it in your, I think your quote from Huxley, that it's it's sort of intoxicants all the way down kind of thing. They, yeah. they, you're getting you're getting yourself fucked up one way or another. Like you're getting into that headspace one way or another. Right? <clears throat> yeah, Which, it's, chem- it's chemicals all the way down, right? So it's um, you can either get the chemicals exogenously, so you get them from the outside in the form of this liquid beverage. Um, or you can generate them endogenously. You can um, have get the same effect through sleep deprivation, repetitive singing, dancing, pain. Um, so yeah, I mean, the first account of speaking in tongues um, and kind of things you associate with Pentecostals is in the New Testament, right? And these when the, they they're sure. speaking in tongues, yeah, yeah, the people walking by say, "Oh, these these people are drunk." Right, because yeah. it, it looks identical to being intoxicated on alcohol, and that's because it is physiologically very similar. You're, you're attaining the same goal through a, a different process. Yeah, it's you say that there's two main factors. I want to definitely make sure we get into this: the whole northern drinking culture and southern drinking culture, and and how the the two main things that have made alcohol 
much more problematic in the modern world are um, isolation and in talk um, <laughs> and what is it the distillation, distillation. yeah yeah so yeah. can you sort of just sketch that out and what the two different cultures are yeah so um the last chapter of the book is focused on the dan- the dark side of Dionysus. The buzzkill chapter. The buzzkill chapter. But it really is, it's it's integral to the argument because, yes. you know, yeah. I have had a lot of people say to me, oh, did your editor make you add that on? And no, I mean, it was part of the structure of the book from the very beginning. It because, didn't feel tacked on to me at all. Yeah, it, it was like being responsible, you know, well, covering the whole me, issue telling the whole story because yeah. um, it really, first of all, the, the, my arguments about the functions of alcohol only make sense against a background of costs. The whole reason it's an interesting evolutionary puzzle is because it's costly um, mm-hmm. in the same way, in the same way, religious behavior is costly. Um, so, you know, it's against the background of costs that the whole book makes sense. Yeah. But my, well, you don't one extol my, the virtues of fire without talking about fire safety as well, right? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, so the other reason for writing that chapter is to point out that alcohol's gotten more dangerous recently. So his, every culture that uses alcohol has is worried about it. You know, every culture I know of that uses alcohol has tried prohibition at some point, you know, they, Mm -hmm. they're worried about consumption because they see that it's, you know, it's a two-sided thing. So, you know, Dionysus is this wonderful God. He can give you these great gifts. Um, But some of those gifts can turn out to not be so awesome. Like the, he gave the golden touch to Midas and that didn't Mm -hmm. turn out so well for Midas. So, (laughs) you know, and his followers would get drunk in the woods. And if you ran across them, they would kill you and eat you. So you got to be worried a little bit about Dionysus. And so all cultures that I know of uh, take advantage of two safety features. So alcohol has always come with these two safety features. One of them is just the limits of natural fermentation. So, you know, Eastern these starches and sugars into, into ethanol and they're re- they're doing it. It's biological warfare, right? They're trying to kill off the bacteria that they're competing with for the, the, the nutrients in the environment. And they, they use alcohol as a weapon because they're relatively immune to it, but only relatively. And at a certain concentration of alcohol, they shut down. So that's a, a naturally fermented beers and wines, which is all we've had for most of our history, have kind of a cap on how strong they can get. And we've been pushing that cap for thousands of years. We've been breeding, you know, stronger and stronger yeast. So we can get, you know, nowadays you can get like double digit um, ABV alcohol by volume on beers and you can get wines. You can push it up to like 16, maybe 17% ABV, but that's as high as you can get. So, you know, alcohol's always had a limit to how strong it could be until we figured out distillation on a large scale. So distillation's basically a way to disable that safety feature. So you, you know, you pull alcohol off, you heat this, the beverage and you pull the alcohol off um, and concentrate it. And you can get up into the like 90% ABV and some, some vodkas and things like that. So <clears throat> this is a wildly more dangerous form of alcohol 
it's um, at a concentration level that we are not designed to deal with physiologically. Most of the benefits that I talk about with alcohol kick in at about 0.08 blood alcohol content. So, you know, depending on your body weight, lots of other, if you've eaten or not, um, that could be one or two beers, glass and a half of wine. But if you're doing shots of vodka, you can just blow right past that into yeah. blackout territory in like 20 minutes. Um, so, so we have this really dangerous new form of alcohol. And in the West, we've only had it since like the 16, 1700s. It's amazing. Which, so recent. It seems like, yeah, so recent. You know, it seems like a long time ago, but, you know, I'm telling a story that starts 10 million years ago. So mm-hmm. on an evolutionary time scale, this is just yesterday. So, yeah. so we've got this super dangerous new form of alcohol. And then the other big safety feature that's always alcohol has always come with is that historically it was either just unheard of or very rare for you to have private access to alcohol. If you were going to drink alcohol, it was going to be in a public setting that was re- regulated by formal, usually very formal rituals. So often toasting cultures or, you know, rules about when the wine gets passed around. Um, At the very least, you think about kind of informal pub culture. You, you know, you and I are out at a pub. I drink my beer really fast because maybe I have alcoholic tendencies and I want that hit of ethanol. Um, I can't just order another beer right away. I've got to wait for you to finish and our friends to finish because we're all going to order another round. Yeah. Uh, maybe the cocktail server uh, doesn't make eye contact with me because they see the rate I'm drinking and they, they want to slow me down. We have all these ways of when we're in social situations, both formal and informal of regulating each other's drinking and helping each other drink safely and all that gets thrown out the window when I can order a case of tequila from my local liquor store and just have it delivered to my house. And I could be here alone in my house with enough. I do like right now in my apartment, I have enough alcohol to kill a small village of people, <laughs> right? And I could drink it all right now if I wanted to. Um, it's, it's insane. So that's mm-hmm. unprecedented too. And, and we saw how dangerous this is in this natural experiment that happened that you would never get human subject approval to run, but it just happened anyway, which is, you know, pandemic lockdowns where we said, Hey, what happens if you don't let people leave their house, but you let them have as much alcohol as they want. And that was, didn't (laughs) turn out not so great. Like problem drinking really went through the roof during the pandemic. And I think that, you know, as lockdowns are easing now, I, you know, one of the things I think dry, I've done some interviews for dry January and things like that. Um, I think these are responses people are having to the fact that um, their drinking got really unhealthy during the pandemic. And the problem with alcohol is it's so physically addictive that once you ramp up your consumption, it's hard to dial it back down again. So, so we have these two Is that, is that true dangers. across the board? It really depends on your level of, to the degree to which you're prone to alcohol use disorder. So I think there are some people who can ramp up and down effortlessly and kind of depending on the situation. Um, But there are lots of, you know, alcohol use disorder is a spectrum and there are people at all points of that spectrum. So there are people who can't touch a single drop or they'll start 
you know, build down a bottle of tequila. And then you've got all sorts of people in between. So I think if you're anywhere on that spectrum, um, once you ramp up your consumption, it's really hard to, to dial it back down. Okay. Yeah. Cause I mean, I've, I've found just personally, I mean, I'm, I'm 48 now, but, uh, in my own life, I've, I've gone through periods of my life where I was drinking a lot or usually every year it's sort of typical that over the holidays, you know, you end up drinking way more yeah, than normal yeah. with family and everything. Um, and then kind of ramping it back down. Um, I just have never found it to be, I mean, it was not a really big deal. And it seems like for most people, it, my impression is that it's not a big deal. And then some people, it really is like some people. Right. It, and I've, I've always been kind of fascinated because it doesn't even seem to be obviously or necessarily linked to the amount. So I've, I've known people who have, who described themselves as alcoholics and I, I believe them that it was really getting in the way of their life and in various ways who I would drink with them and they didn't seem like they drink that much to me, you know, so it doesn't even seem like it's necessarily the total amount. Like it's just some people um, have a harder time with it. You know, I, yeah. Some people have a harder time just not doing it at all. Um, Or again, ramping, you know, ramping back down after they've ramped up and, there's all sorts of, again, all sorts of people associate alcoholism with kind of Charles Bukowski level, you know, <laughs> just, yeah, you know, completely incapacitated. Um, but actually, actually alcohol use disorder is a spectrum and people can be at all different points on that. Um, so yeah, people who have a, typically a family history of alcohol use disorder can have trouble ramping down their consumption. Um, even if they, you know, you never see them visibly drunk, they could um, have a kind of dependence on a certain amount of alcohol every day. So, so you're lucky, you know, you're part of a, a pretty low risk population where um, you have more control over it. But I, I mean, alcohol is a, it's a dangerous substance. And, and I think the most dangerous thing about it is how addictive it is physically, especially if you kind of are prone to, to being susceptible to that. So that's where, you know, these drinking cultures come in. So, um, you know, there's various ways we control or don't control each other's drinking. And anthropologists talk about Southern versus Northern drinking cultures. Um, and they're talking about Europe, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, generalizes so like, you know, Russia is a Northern culture in this, in this typology. Um, <clears throat> Northern cultures drink mostly distilled liquors. Um, they drink to get drunk. They typically drink in, single sex groups. So you've got a bunch of dudes together drinking mm-hmm. alone. They're not eating when they drink, they're just drinking. Um, alcohol is forbidden to children. It's kind of a taboo thing. That's only for adults. And the, the goal of drinking is to get drunk. If you, if you're not visibly drunk, you're not doing it right. You know, you're yeah. not one of the guys. Um, Do another shot. Another shot. Yeah. The kind of, um, that's Northern drinking culture. Um, and that's the culture that most of North America has inherited. Um, I guess maybe there are some pockets like, um, Francophone Quebec where maybe they've inherited the Southern. So the Southern culture on the other hand, um, focuses more on beer and wine. Um, you only drink around the meal table. So it's always in the context of a meal 
everyone's involved. So it's the whole family, old people, kids, kids get a little bit of wine watered down um, at the table. You drinking to get drinking to the point that you're visibly drunk is shameful. Um, you would never, if you, if it happens to you, you're very embarrassed and you really try not to do it again. Um, and once the meal is over and everyone leaves the table, that's it. The drinking is done. And there's just evidence that that's incredibly protective in terms of helping people to keep their, their alcohol use at a, at a safe level. So you see, um, in Italy, which is kind of classic Southern culture and the one, the one that I know the best, um, per capita consumption of alcohol is really high. I think they, for a while, I think they were most in Europe, but alcoholism rates are really low. And it's not because the Italians are genetically different than, than other Europeans. It's because of the Southern drinking culture. So, um, the way in which you use alcohol can really have an impact on how safe or not safe it is for you. And I think that the, the drinking culture in North America, especially like if you, if you were a cultural anthropologist and you wanted to invent like the worst possible drinking culture, it would be college, North American college drinking culture. Animal uh, house. Know, animal, animal house, house like yeah. hard alcohol, um, you know, encouraging people to get drunk. It's all kids who don't have fully developed PFCs yet drinking this thing that just directly paralyzes their PFC. It's like the worst, the worst possible culture you could have. Yeah. I, I wonder how this would fit into your conceptual framework. So, Growing up here in Quebec, uh, you, you grow up not only bilingual, but you also grow up uh, bicultural, right? Mm-hmm. So there's two different cultures that you, main cultures you can see. And I remember very clearly um, growing up here that there were, there were like the predominantly English bars and the predominantly French bars in Montreal. And mm-hmm. they were on different streets in different regions of the city. Yeah, yeah. But there was a very, very big difference between the drinking culture at the one or the other. So I remember when I started going out with the fake ID when I was, I don't know, like 16, 17, like with friends yeah. or to the places that would look the other way if you were underage. There was, uh, if you went to a typical English bar, which were on these streets called Bishop and Crescent in downtown Montreal. Yeah, I can picture them. Those bars, um, they would have, let's say, a typical club bar that had three floors for a Friday or Saturday night. They would have a small army of steroid pumped uh, bouncers with headsets. And they would be like, they would be stopping fights on the dance floor throughout yeah. the evening and then just as as a regular part of the culture when the bars let out at three o'clock in the morning there would be a couple slug fests out on the yeah, sidewalk right. after that that was the culture of the english bars meanwhile i would go with my my french friends to like saint denis and stuff like that in plateau montreal to the bars and meanwhile this would be a club that's exactly the same size three floors you know like tons of people dancing young people um and in this place there would be no bouncers like literally not one bouncer in the place yeah if a problem happened one of the 
bartenders or one of the waiters or waitresses would call the police and the police would come. But they, that almost never happened. Like I, yeah, you know, I think in all my years, a kid going to like French bars and clubs, I saw maybe, maybe one or two physical altercations break out in the entire time. And this is right in the same city, often just a few streets away completely different drinking cultures and then to take it a little bit farther um growing up here my friends especially when you're sort of learning how to drink and you're figuring out what your tolerance is and how to do things um i've actually you know at the age of 48 i've i've still i've never puked on alcohol in my life like i've never Mm -hmm. done it to that extent um but I've, you know, I've gotten very drunk before, but I, I just didn't puke. But I, I had friends who, when we were teenagers and maybe like when they're just on the learning curve, they had it, they overdid it one night and they were sick the next day. Yeah. But this is the most ever happened to any of my friends or my friends' friends or my extended family was puking. That was it. Well, my yeah. first serious girlfriend, she ended up going to the Maritimes for university. And she was at Mount Allison and she, and then she ended up after she graduated, she ended up living in Halifax for a little while. And she just constantly was telling me, she's like, Oh my God. She goes, the drinking culture here is like nothing I've ever seen growing up in Montreal. She said, people, not only do people routinely drink till they puke, like, you know, every weekend, it's like a slogan party till you puke. But on top of that, people routinely have have to get their their carpets and their their furniture professionally and their beds professionally cleaned because people get so wasted that they piss themselves. Oh god. And even yeah. shit themselves. Like remember in train spotting when he like yeah, shits yeah, himself yeah, like yeah, yeah. they yeah. routinely and this is just like oh you know like uh that's just what happens. You know it's nobody people are gonna and they just this was normalized and she was horrified by it. Yeah. So she actually came back and asked, like, have you ever heard of anybody drinking until they had to go to the hospital for alcohol poisoning? I was like, no. She yeah. asked, like, all of yeah. her friends in our, our network here, have you ever heard of anybody drinking so much that they pissed themselves? And they had never heard of anybody doing this. So what do you think is going on? Like, what shapes those cultures? Well, that's, it's precisely, it's a beautiful example because it's, I really love the uh, Montreal example because it's a nice controlled experiment in a way. Yes. You know, you've got the same place, um, probably genetically pretty similar people, um, but wildly different cultures, just side by side, streets away from each other. And the results are completely different. So that's a beautiful, I'm going to, I'll use that from now on. Uh, that's a great example of just how important culture is right if you have a healthy culture um it's protective against this kind of crazy binge drinking and so you know i worry my daughter's 16 and she's um she's experimenting with alcohol and i'm hoping that vancouver you know anglophone vancouver is very much a northern drinking culture Um, we don't have very much french influence here and i'm hoping that the fact that she grew up um, spending a lot of time in Italy and being exposed to that culture and being exposed to that culture at home. So, you know, at a pretty early age, she could have a little bit of wine with dinner at home. And um, I'm hoping that'll be protective for her. Um, 
but it's um, it's scary. I wish I wish I could raise her in a culture where the you know when she walks out the door, the culture she's encountering is the same one she has at home. But unfortunately, it's not in anglophone parts of Canada. Yeah. Well, the the way that it was done here, Grime, this is what my mother was like with us, and you know what we were like with our kids. Our, our kids are twenty and nineteen at the moment, but like Hello. we. Uh, my mother always said, like, if, you know, you're going to drink, you're going to do, do drugs and stuff like that. But I would like you to do it in house parties where there's a parent, you know, like nearby sort of in, yeah. case, in case of emergency <clears throat> yeah. break glass yeah. kind of thing. We don't want yeah. you dealing with yeah. like the police or with neighbors uh, unmitigated. We want some sort of protection. So I remember yeah. like, we lived in an apartment building when I was a teenager and my my aunt lived in an apartment down the hall and so if i had a when i had a party like for my 16th birthday you know we were had beers and stuff like that and my mom had a sort of don't ask don't tell kind of policy (laughs) but but she would be next door at my aunt gail's place and it was sort of like okay if something happens if something if if there's a problem if somebody's getting out of hand if somebody's getting sick if somebody's hurt you come and get me right away and like and you know i will uh fix the situation so there's there's that safety of almost like having like a spotter you know while you're like you're lifting this new neural toxin you know like (laughs) like you've got a spotter there just in case like uh, but there was never there was never any there's never any kind of big problem but it's um yeah i mean i i just wonder It'd be very interesting to figure out what is the, what are the the cultural things that change this? Because it's in the case that I'm talking about, the different the French bars and the English bars, it's not just that because clearly they're not having it with dinner, um, they're out yeah, at a right, bar or club, right, but yet right. people still are not overdoing it. It's and, because there's an internalized shame, like if you. <clears throat> You know, I lived in Rome for a year on sabbatical. And if you're walking around downtown Rome at night and you see visibly drunk people, they're American or German or Russian tourists. They're not locals. Um, locals just don't drink to the point of getting drunk. And I think that's the really crucial thing is that if you if you have a culture where drinking to excess, where you slur your words and you stumble and you is people look at you askance. Um, that's the, that's a healthy culture, right? That's a culture where you're going to just, without even noticing it, you're going to be moderating your consumption because as soon as you start to feel out of control, you'll feel shame. You'll, you'll realize that people are going to judge you in a negative way. Whereas if you're, you're in a culture where as soon as you, you start to feel, you need to start to feel that before people think you're one of the team, um, you're one of the guys, um, you know, it's not rocket science. So, um, humans are really susceptible to social shaming. And so I think that if you have a culture that, um, considers drinking to excess, drinking to the point that you throw up, drinking the fact that you can't walk straight, if they view that as shameful, you people are just going to not do it. Um, even if they're in a club at night and, you know, they have in theory access to infinite amounts of alcohol. So I think that, I don't know how you change that once it's established. Um, 
so I mean, I if I had infinite flexibility, I would just move my daughter right now to back to Italy or something, <laughs> uh, or to or to Frank or to Montreal, right to the French part of Montreal, um, just to to get some backup because the the problem is I'm fighting, you know, her her mother and I are both fighting this battle against the dominant culture that we live in, which is a you know party till you puke culture. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's a tough one. I have a number of questions from students uh, that they wanted me to ask you. <laughs> so okay, yeah, um, no, because I, so one of the one of the things that I I have them do is I have I've assigned a couple chapters from uh, from Drunk from your book, and then I also have them read two chapters from Malcolm Gladwell's uh, Talking to Strangers. Right, so he oh, of okay. course yeah. he of course talks a lot about you know the research into alcohol and binge drinking and blacking out and stuff like that. And one of the things that he takes issue with, um, which is you're on the other side for the most part of this, this debate. But um, so I think for the most part, you would agree with the old idea, like in Vino Veritas, like in wine, there is truth that like Mm -hmm. what comes out when you're drunk is um, what's already there. So if you behave like a misogynistic, you know, racist creep when you're drunk. It's because that was already primed in you. Like the the alcohol right. didn't make you like that. It just sort of disinhibited you so that you could act on what was already there. Right. And I I tend to very much agree with that. Just for a lot of reasons, it makes a great deal of sense to me. But what Malcolm Gladwell argues in talking to strangers, and he's I mean, it's not his idea. He's just piggybacking on other people's research, but um, that that this is actually not true, that um, when you reach a certain blood alcohol level where you're, you know, getting close to blacking out and things like that, that actually um, you're doing things uh, at that point that you would never normally do and that you will not remember at all. Um, and so it becomes it becomes tricky morally and legally that if we have a legal system and I, I, you know, I had uh, Joseph Henrik on the podcast and we covered some of this ground in our discussion as well about like, you know, the weird obsession with intentionality and free will and all that stuff. But like um, Godwell's point is that when you're, when you're above a certain level of inebriation, uh, you're just, you're just not there, you know, like you're, you're checked out. Um, yeah. So it's not, he basically says it's not, it's not necessarily true that, uh, what's coming out is like some deep truth about you that this is maybe just like, you know, looking at somebody who's got, you know, like my father-in-law right now is, is declining very rapidly with, um, a, a kind of dementia that hits you pretty early on it hit him in his early 60s and he's he's got you know he went from being a vice president of a chemical company to being like a child in yeah a short yeah. amount of time and so we've had this discussion with regard to my father-in-law often it's like okay are you basically just seeing like the true him coming out now or is this just like a brain that's malfunctioning right so right wh- where yeah. do you fall on this this question yeah i've read i read something uh gla- Gladwell wrote a short piece on this topic. And I think partly we're talking past each other because if you're talking about close to blackout levels of inebriation, 
that's a very different thing than what I'm focusing on in drunk. Um, so, you know, and it also gets a different issue of like, who, who's the, you know, who are you? Who's the real you? Is it, um, is it your PFC dominated self, which a lot of people would say, right. Um, my conscious self, the part of me that can delay gratification and, um, take, all sorts of incentives into mind and control my impulses. That's part of me too. But what I'm arguing in drunk is that there's that sweet spot of inebriation again, about 0.08, um, just about the point where you shouldn't be operating heavy machinery is when a lot of these benefits kick in. And, and one of them is this, it is a truth serum of sorts because it just makes sense that if you're disabling what you're doing when you when you downregulate the PFC is you're disabling monitoring ability. I'm less able to self-monitor. Um, I'm as, less able to control um, impulses, and so you are seeing something that is normally suppressed. Now, is that the real you? Um, this is a really deep philosophical question. You can't answer. Um, if it's the case that when I get drunk. Um, you know, I, I tell you, you know, you're my best friend and I love you, man. Let's always stay in touch. Um, but then when I'm sober and drinking coffee, I don't pick up the phone and call you and I don't answer your emails. Um, you know, which one's the real me? It's unclear, right? There's well, some, sounds like the real you is in that case would be a very poorly integrated person. <laughs> yes, a poorly integrated person. So it's, I mean, this is the, um, it, it just has to be the case that alcohol is revealing just because of what it's doing functionally, downregulating the PFC. But you take the PFC down enough and then you're, you know, once you get up to high, really high levels of inebriation, you know, whatever, 0. 0.2, 0. 0.3, where you're getting near to blacking out, you, you've now taken so much of the neocortex offline that then I don't think it's the real you anymore. Now you're just, you're more like a kind of dementia patient where you've just, you've taken out such large chunks of the brain that um, it's hard to say who you're dealing with anymore. So I I would agree with Gladwell on that, but but, you know, the, the kind of in vino, you know, it's in vino veritas. So in wine, there's truth Um, in tequila shots. Maybe there's not truth. Right, it, it's it's all dosage, dosage dependent. Oh, that's good. Yeah. You should you should write that down. That's a really I will good write line. that down. Yeah. That's a really yeah. good line. So, would you say like the uh, you know if the old expression is uh, you know drunk words are sober thoughts? Uh, so, if if drunk words are sober thoughts, are drunk actions sober fantasies? Maybe. Um, although again, you know, who you are when you've taken big chunks of the brain offline <clears throat> could be unpredictable and, and may not really line up with what you really want um, in your sober life. So it's complicated. I mean, it gets to this big issue, right, of the unity of the self. And, um, you know, I don't, I tend to think that there's not as strong a unity as we think there is. Um, so it's a complicated issue, of, you know, who you are once you've disabled parts of that self. But yeah, I think that, you know, the, the tension between what I'm saying and Gladwell saying is resolved. If you think about different levels of inebriation. That, that really we're talking not about like a spectrum, but it's a phase 
change. Like it's, you know, it's like when you go into like blackout mode, it's, it's a different thing completely. Like I, I liked where you said that in the book that, um, you know, some, some changes that we could do to, to fix this, that there should be a different drinking age for hard stuff for distilled liquors than for beer and wine, that we should just look at them as, as different things. That, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So I think, you know, and this is the case in some jurisdictions. So I think in Germany, um, there's different drinking ages and we do, tr- we treat them differently. Um, <clears throat> I know there are a lot of, in the States, there are a lot of States where, um, you know, you can have a wine and beer license, but it's very hard to get a distilled liquor license. So there is a, some degree to which we treat them differently. Um, but not enough. I think, I really think that, um, distilled liquors are so much more dangerous, especially for young people. Cause you know, young people are trying to figure out how to use alcohol and through trial and error with often without any kind of adult supervision. And if they're experimenting with a 3% ABV beer, there's a lot of, you know, it's like drive, they're driving a bumper car. They've got these big bumpers that are keeping them safe because just physically it's really hard to get dangerously drunk on a 3% beer. If they have access to tequila or vodka, you know, they could get really, really dangerously drunk very quickly because they don't know what they're doing. And so I really think that, um, and it's, I think it's the, the danger is compounded by the fact that young people, you know, who are not drinking age yet, for them, distilled liquor is the liquor of choice because it's um, it's cheaper, kind of per punch. Like you can get a cheap a cheap bottle of vodka will get you really messed up um, mm-hmm. in a in a way that trying to do the same thing with beer or wine would cost you a lot more. It's easier to conceal. Um, it's easier to sneak. So, you know, if you have alcohol at home, your parents have alcohol, it's easier to, you know, drain some of the vodka bottle and fill it back with water or just hope your parents don't notice, (laughs) you know, whereas, um, you know, if my Chateau Neuf de Pop is missing, I'm going to pick that up pretty quickly. So I think, you know, it's a problem because young people drinking are going to tend to gravitate to distilled liquor for a lot of different reasons that are just pragmatic. But the danger is that the type of liquor they're being drawn to is, is the most dangerous type. And especially for people who don't know what they're doing. Yeah. It's, it's very interesting to see how the, how parties seem to happen now, because uh, there's, you know, you talk about this in your book that uh, there's increasingly people who, who abstain and who are sort of evangelical about that. And it used to be the case that the only people I knew growing up who were really kind of no way taking the teetotal pledge kind of thing were very religious people. Um, right. But now it's, it's a, a more mixed bag of people who are young people who are not drinking. And I, I don't know, it's just very fascinating to me to think about what they're going to replace these things with. Because you, you you talk about this in your book, but when I was in undergrad and, you know, in grad school and stuff like that, like, just like you, it was the normal thing that the conversation that started in the seminar room or the classroom would spill over into the pub, the university pub yeah. afterwards. And would that's where the really 
amazing conversations that shaped yeah. me intellectually happened. They all happened there when you're hanging out with your profs and it's a more relaxed environment and you know the, the PFC has been downregulated. People are more kind of they're less guarded and that's where the really amazing conversations where I learned a lot about how things, you know, about, you know, that whole beautiful world of ideas. I, that was where it happened. And now um, I totally understand why, why that has, is happening less and less because it's true. There were problems and abuses associated with that. Definitely. There was like, sure. you know, there was a certain amount of, sexual hanky-panky that happened between grad students and profs and between, you know, yeah. and maybe, maybe that was, you know, as far as I can tell, most of that was totally consensual, but whatever. Um, the increasingly the sort of the Neo-Victorian proofs uh, <laughs> yeah. that are running our universities now combined with like very risk adverse legal departments. Um, yeah. They're, they're basically saying all that stuff can't happen. And I just don't see how, you know, what is coming in to fill, fill the void. Like it doesn't seem yeah. like anything is. So now what's happening is people increasingly don't have real connections with their advisors and their profs they don't get those conversations and and they don't even get those conversations with each other yeah so increasingly yeah. they just like sort of go to their class and after their class they all you know put their mask on and go home and so we're, we're prioritizing safety and security but all these other things are are getting there's all these other costs associated with it Right. But the problem is we don't, especially policymakers, don't see those costs. They don't see what they're lo- They don't see the benefits that they're losing. All, I think their decisions are quite rational in the absence of really explicit discussions of what the benefits of these types of interactions are. Because without that, if I'm, all I'm seeing is lawsuits, Right. It totally makes sense for university administrators to say, you know, no, no alcohol, anything remotely related to university events. Um, it makes sense for SHRC, you know, the Canadian funding agency to not allow government funds to be spent on alcohol. Because if it's just a vice, if it's just, you know, why should taxpayers pay for that? Um, so I think that these decisions are rational in the absence of any kind of view of what the positive functions of alcohol are. And that's kind of what I'm trying to do in, in drunk. Don't you is, think it's so hypocritical? Because I mean, my, my wife presently is a principal on a very large shirk grant. Uh-huh. And um, and I, I have many friends who are, you know, have shirk grants, the very big ones, you know, million, multi-million dollar ones. And they yeah. all find a way to buy booze. Oh yeah, we just kicked in. Yeah, it's, we, just, we, yeah. it's basically yeah. like a tax on like the researchers because they end up paying for it out of pocket. Yeah, or they end yeah. up like you know calling something like a food cost and you know just being a little sketchy about the receipts. You know, like <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. So it's a, yeah. it's a bit of like, and you know, I mean, this sort of the, the little bit of me that is sympathetic to libertarianism sees that you know any kind of system that is um is basically setting up a situation where you know people are going to lie is fundamentally kind of evil 
Like it's not yeah. it's not good to set up. Like if you if you make a speed limit that you know everybody's not going to follow, so that you have a pretense for stopping anybody, or if you set up like it just seems like that shirk rule is so. I mean, they they must know. Like the people in Ottawa must yeah, actually know, know that this isn't yeah. being stuck. To. No, I think they're trying to shift behavior, and I do want to go on record saying that I do not approve of misusing shirk rules. <laughs> Just in case anyone is listening, um, I officially disapprove of that. Yes. Um, so we ended up, so we got this, you know, I talk about this briefly in the, in drunk that we, um, you know, Joe Henry, actually Joe Henrik, who you just talked to and I and Aaron Oren Zion and Mark Coward, who's an archaeologist now at SFU, um, we got a big shirt partnership grant. This was the first one that program just started. We got the first partnership grant at UBC, $3 million um, over five years. And it was a networking grant. You know, it was a grant to bring together research teams who had been working in isolation and in some cases in competition with one another. A bunch of, a lot of big egos. Uh, Our job was to get them all to cooperate and work together. Um, and so we got the grant and I was like, well, there's no way we're going to do this without alcohol. So we, we just, the four of us, you know, chipped in funds to what we called it our black, black fund, um, where that we would use for alcohol. Black because, bank operations. Yeah. 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 Um, but I, again, I don't think it's, I don't think it's necessarily hypocritical of Ottawa to have this policy. It's a rational policy if you view alcohol purely as a vice, I mean, they're also not going to pay for pornography so that you can masturbate, you know, mm-hmm. after you've done your day of research because you do that on your own time. And I think the problem is that government agencies, <clears throat> university administrators view alcohol as just a vice on par with nicotine or masturbation or eating junk food. So why would taxpayers pay for that? Um, and I think what needs to change is for people to realize that it's not alcohol is not purely a vice. It has this really crucial function. And so we had these breakthroughs where, you know, people who hated each other finally talked and agreed to, you know, share a postdoc or collaborate on this project. And I am 100% sure that that would not have happened if we had been drinking Pepsi. You know, we were that worked because we were drinking really good red wine over a nice meal. People were getting relaxed. They're getting some serotonin boost. They're getting endorphins. They suddenly decided they didn't hate their rival as much as they did before. Um, that is purely due to this ancient, ubiquitous function of alcohol. So, so I think that just you know we need to we need to be. I think we're aware of it implicitly at some level, most people realize that, I mean, this is why, you know, the pandemic, you're shutting down everything, right? Um, can't go to the gym anymore. You can't get a haircut, um, but liquor stores stayed open. And that's also kind of hypocritical, <laughs> but, but I think it's because we have this implicit recognition that alcohol serves this crucial function, but we don't, I think until what I'm hoping to do is in drunk is actually just spell out, look, here are the benefits. Here's the scientific evidence for these evidence, you know, these, these benefits, why 
ethanol hitting your brain body system would produce these benefits. Here's, you know, massive amount of cross-cultural and historical and anthropological evidence that this is precisely how cultures throughout time and across the world have used this substance. Um, if you can lay that case out there, then, you know, me as a university administrator or the head of Shirk um, can make a more rational decision about this and, and realize that if I'm asking people to network professionally, I need to give them the cultural technologies that are appropriate to that task. And that, and that's going to include, you know, moderate amount of alcohol. Okay. I, when I was uh, preparing for this discussion, I went and read your book, um, trying not to try drunk. I've read probably, Oh my God, like five times now, but like oh. the try. And I was amazed at how much, like how much the two books are connected. Like they, they almost seem like, you know, sometime in the future, if you came out with a new edition, like, like sort of the way in which certain books by Nietzsche are always coupled together, you know, like yeah, right. it feels like these really should be like two parts of one larger volume because they're, you really are looking at like some very, very similar questions and different solution. Cause I mean, you could say drunk is sort of like the, the best and most efficient cultural technology that we've come up with that makes you good at being effortless, getting into yeah. effortless action, right? Like yeah. that's, um, and so it seems like your third, your third book that you're working on now seems like, like maybe it's the third part of the trilogy sort of thing. So, <laughs> right. yeah. so how, how is this project that you're working <clears throat> on, the, the third book in the trilogy, as I sort of conceptualize it, how is it going to sort of revisit the questions that you bring up and trying not to try and drunk and, and what new, new things are you going to look at in the new one? Yeah, that's interesting. It's not fully f formed yet. And I, I have to, I have an academic monograph I'm going to be writing in between. Um, Cause I have to just show everybody that I'm still a real professor. Um, but the next book is going to be a kind of continuity. Yeah. It's an interesting way to look. I haven't consciously thought about it that way. But certainly, you know, drunk grows out of trying not to try. And so a lot of my colleagues, it makes sense that I would write a trade book about early Chinese philosophy because that's my, my main area of specialty. Um, the fact that I would write a trade book about the history of alcohol and the science of alcohol seems bizarre to most of my colleagues. But you're absolutely right that it grew organically out of the Try Not to Try project because what I'm trying to get people to see in that book, first book, is you know the power of spont spontaneity, the function of getting into this state of wu-wei or effortless action. How it you know you're more creative, you're more flexible, you um, socialize better with others. You have this duh right, this this kind of charismatic power that makes people trust you and like you. And in writing that book, you know, I was grappling with this paradox of wu-wei. If if you know that being spontaneous is the secret to success in a given situation. How do you, how do you force yourself to be spontaneous? And, you know, and I argue it's a, it's a, it is a cognitive paradox because you're the part of your brain you're activating 
the PFC when you're trying to do something is in this case, the thing you're trying to shut down. So you're, it's directly counterproductive. And I, in, in trying not to try, I walked through these various strategies that these early Taoists and Confucians came up with to, tr- to try to trick you essentially into getting around this paradox. So, um, you know, uh, sit this, sit in meditation, do these rituals, breathe in this way, um, various ways to essentially use your body to get around this, this mental paradox. But one of these texts, the Zhuangzi, uses drunkenness at one point as a metaphor for being in the state of Wu Wei. So it talks about this, uh, this passage talks about this guy who's coming home from night of drinking and he falls off a cart and he's unharmed because he doesn't, he didn't know he was riding and he doesn't know he, he has fallen out. <laughs> he's kind of protected yeah. by being, you know, he rolls with it and, you know, he Which doesn't Which we've all up. experienced. I've, I've yes. fallen when yeah. I was drunk and yeah. you like, you don't hurt yourself at all because you just, you're so relaxed. You just like you're roll loose. naturally yeah. and yeah, you're loose. Yeah. 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 So, you know, and there's clearly there a, a metaphor because at the end of the story, he says, you know, imagine if you could be protected this much by alcohol how much more so if you're drunk on heaven is how the passage ends. So, you know, what you want to be drunk on, you want to be like the Pentecostals and be drunk on heaven, not on, not on this physical substance. But it, that passage kind of stuck in my head and made me start to think, um, may, you know, maybe alcohol is this cultural technology that we've developed to help us get past that paradox because, you know, meditation and ritual and singing and dancing all night are really time consuming <laughs> and, <laughs> and difficult. Um, yeah. And if you could get the same effect just by having a couple of glasses of wine, you know, maybe that's, maybe there's a reason that, uh, you know, cultures use this technology. So that, so drunk grew out of that tension, but you know, the benefits of spontaneity and the, paradoxes and tensions that we face in capturing its benefits. Um, that, that is something that really drove, drove drunk. And drunk, um, you even, you even give photographic evidence of da. You capture yes, yeah, photographically, yeah, yeah. like you, you actually, the, that wonderful work from the Brazilian researcher yeah, that, yeah, that showed yeah. that like people actually are more attractive when they're yeah. drunk. Which yeah. which is amazing. It's like you actually like that. That was one of the many obvious connections between the two books. It's like here's photographic, like the captured da. <laughs> like yeah, can, yeah. This like, is what this is what da looks like. Yeah, yeah. yeah. This is your um, brain on da. Any questions? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that so that um, that's the connection between those two. And then um, at the end of drunk, so in that last chapter, I point out a kind of irony of the book, which is that um, celebrating Dionysus, you know, the power of, you know, spontaneity, release, taking a vacation from the prefrontal cortex. Um, but I'm doing it in a very Apollonian way. I'm arguing for the function. I'm, I, in some ways, I'm sounding a bit like these, these health Nazis who, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> you can't do anything unless it's extending your lifespan. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a little, that's ironic. And I was actually very influenced by this, um, this writer, Stuart Walton. He's a, he's a British writer. He's really funny. He's got this great book called Out of It, 
about the the use of chemical intoxicants. And he really rails against this neo-Puritanism where we we can't acknowledge. He's got a great passage that I quote about um, this British, very famous British wine critic, you know, talking about qualities of wine and how, you know, unfortunately our ancestors were probably drawn to it because of its cognitive effects. And he's like, why do we have to say, unfortunately, you know, isn't that part of like, what's so (laughs) awesome about wine. Um, And so I, I kind of, I turned to Stuart's arguments near the end of the book and say, look, in addition, I have to make the functional arguments because again, evolution doesn't care about pleasure or if we're happy or not. Um, so I have to make functional arguments for why alcohol has played this role for us. But at the end of the book, I, I turned to this issue of we're not our genes. Like our genes don't care if we're happy or not, but we do. And we care whether or not we experience pleasure. And so pleasure should be on top of all the functional stuff. The fact that it makes you feel good shouldn't be something that we're ashamed of or that we apologize for. It actually should be another benefit, um, you know, another plus in the, the functional uh, column. So, so that maybe then started thinking about just this broader issue of hedonism and, and this, um, this weird neo-Puritan culture we live in where we're supposed to be maximizing our productivity and, um, you know, using life hacks to, uh, make sure that we're healthier and we're stronger and we are better, you know, doing the best we can for the environment. And um, it's a weird culture. And it, it's a weird culture that also seems to have taken hold in a very specific socioeconomic class. You know, it's, the, it's the New Yorker our readers, <laughs> our people, you know, oh, yes. yeah, people read the New York <laughs> times. And um, so it's weird. And it, um, so I want to, um, the next book is, is basically going to be taking a, a small observation at the end of drunk and expanding on it and exploring this issue of why, why we're afraid of pleasure or why we don't give it its due and, and celebrating a form of hedonism um, and hedonism broadly understood. So I think the problem is hedonism in English has this connotation of just kind of, you know, wallowing in liquor and sex and not, you know, doing anything useful. Um, it's, it's a negative connotation. And so I want to, I guess in this book, what try to recover the, the ancient Greek sense of hedonism, which is pursuit of pleasure, but pleasure very broadly understood and including, you know, intellectual pleasure and the pleasure. Enlightened hedonism, like Epicureanism. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that is again, Epicurus, uh, Epicurus gets his bad rap. Like, you know, it's just eating foie gras and drinking wine is, is Epicurus. But he was actually the ancient Greek hedonists like Epicurus were, they did not eat foie gras. You know, they were, because they, they thought that actually physical pleasures like that were not real pleasures because they were so costly that um, the wise person would not indulge in them. So they were actually really um, ascetic in terms of the way they approached things like food and wine. Well, most um, of the time. On the 20th of the month, they would go pretty wild. Go, yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I'm I'm more optimistic. I'm about the value of 
things like food and wine and sex than I think the Greek hedonists were. So I want to make an argument for a 21st century form of enlightened hedonism. Yeah, now that, that, that would be really, really fascinating. I mean, one of the parallels you make uh, throughout Drunk, and you, you talk about this and trying not to try it as well, is the way in which that same kind of class of people the New York Times, PBS, NPR, kind of like you know, people that they, they, the way that they view religion, you know, that mm-hmm. religion is basically this like silly, destructive thing that we should get rid of, you know, this sort of new atheist kind of position. Yeah. Um, but, and then, but then there'll be some people who say, well, you know, religion is, is yeah, it's kind of crazy and it's bullshit, but it has all these important social functions. So we should be pro-religion because of its, you know, which which is really kind of another version of like we should be pro this because it's good for you or nutritious or something, right? It helps social yeah. movements or yeah, you know, Martin Luther King used the churches, so we should be pro-churches because they can make activism. But this is the kind of reductionism that you're you're always taking aim at that like why do things have to be necessarily if something is inherently fun and pleasurable and people like doing it then like just leave them alone like they they don't you don't have to sort of find some way in which this is like got antioxidants or something like yeah well you see this with child rearing too where like kids get um shunted into things that are quote unquote fun, but they also have to be educational, right? They've got to be learning something that's going to help them get into a competitive elementary school. Um, And I think that's a problem, right? You know, kids should have fun just because they should have fun, right? They should be let loose to do completely useless things because that's what childhood is about. Um, And so, yeah, I think it's, I think our, partly I think, you know, there's this, um, there's an anxiety in the professional classes because there's so much competition. It's harder to get slots at elite schools. Um, You know, AI is going to start displacing certain knowledge workers soon. Um, Mm -hmm. So maybe that's part of it. Well, we already, this this semester, I'm sure you've been talking a lot in your department. Yeah, I tried to. Yeah. 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 It's just, yeah, you know, and I actually went back and realized I probably got a couple papers like that last semester. Yeah, I just yeah, didn't yeah. know. Like, yeah, yeah. No, you know, I like have a student who write, never came to class and I failed all the quizzes, but writes this, you know, stunning but kind of <laughs> off-topic <laughs> final essay, yeah, like, which yeah, I yeah, which yeah. I thought for sure was plagiarized, but I went online and couldn't find it anywhere. Now I find I, it. Yeah. I think she yeah. wrote it with the chat. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, no, it's, um, so I think that anxiety maybe is part of what's driving this kind of, we have to be you know, constantly making ourselves better, but it has hints of, it's a kind of inheritance from Calvinism, you know, as you note, this kind of, it's structurally very similar to Calvinism, especially in the sense that, um, you know, that anxiety Calvinists had to, to show that they were one of the elect, um, you know, and so you're constantly trying to, you know, show that you're, you're going to go to heaven and you're part of this elite group. Um, I think it's a very similar kind of signaling that uh, a lot of people in our social circles feel like they need to do, you know, on Twitter, all this virtue signaling and, um, 
it's it's a weird it's a weird phenomenon it's a weird phenomenon but it makes sense sociologically i think and it's it's not structurally that different from other types of religion so yeah <clears throat> i want to well, try and it's, that it's it's very harsh because the flip side is that if you really and this is uh you know i was really into this like in grad school it's very fascinated by this like that suddenly I noticed that people that I thought of as being very far left, you know, kind of like very progressive, like uh, people were saying things that agreed very much with my fundamentalist relatives. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, yeah. how come these people are starting to agree? Like if somebody got cancer, let's say, um, yeah. like for instance, this one woman that I knew who was lesbian who got diagnosed with cancer and she, uh, she got sick and she eventually died. And I was so shocked that like, I had like fundamentalist relatives saying, well, she was judged because of her lifestyle and that's sure. why she got cancer. And then meanwhile, I had like sort of like patchouli yoga mat wielding <laughs> women yeah. who were saying, well, you know, she didn't eat properly. She had yeah, a lot right. of trans fats. Yeah. She, she had a lot of trans fat. She did way yeah. too much ecstasy and rage. Oh, she smoked. That's she like, did that uh, thing. So she basically, they were basically saying the same thing. She, yeah, this yeah. is the wages of sin are death, right? Like you're getting this <laughs> yeah. because you yeah. behaved in an immoral way. Right? Yeah. And that's where I thought like, okay, when you get people who would never hang out with each who other, hate each to other say the, starting to say yeah. the same things, yeah, that's an indication that there's something wacky going on in a culture. Yeah, no, especially the the moral shaming and the kind of um, <clears throat> displays the need to display moral purity, and also just immediately condemn, absolutely and without question, any perceived departure from orthodoxy, is all just as a religious studies scholar. You know, I so you growing up in a fundamentalist environment would recognize it right away, and me as sure. a religious studies scholar recognize it right away. It's how religions work, right? You have a you have an in group. You've got certain costly displays you make to show you're part of the in group. You police your boundaries very carefully, and you know, crucially, if to show that you're a member of the tribe, you have to condemn without question immediately anyone who's violated, you know, the pur purity standards that you, you embrace. And so that's exactly what you, I think you see in kind of certain militant forms of the left now that have kind of dominated, dominate academia now. And um, yeah, parts of, parts of public life, like uh, journalism. And yeah. So it's interesting. I find it interesting just intellectually because it, um, as a religious studies scholar, I want to kind of study it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I also interact with adherence to, you know, I have to also in my professional life interact with adherence to the, well, these they have a certain amount of power over your life, right? In Absolutely. a way that fundamentalist yeah. religious people just don't because they're just right. in different right. domains. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, you have, so to those, pay you have to pay attention to them. And, um, to you know, them, they're, they, one, one thing I find with the humans are like, but like, it's that if you try and express to people who have that ideology that they're behaving in a fundamentally religious way, they just can't see it. It's like the sixth sense, you know, I see dead people. They don't know yeah. they're dead. It's like, I see yeah. religious people. They don't know they're religious. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. 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 I that guess. is the difference too, is that it's not, 
there's not a self-awareness that it's a belief system. And that maybe in a way makes it harder to, um, harder to, to control in a way because people don't, at least fundamentalists know that they they're religious. They belong to a religion. They know what their group identity is. Um, I don't think this other movement is self-aware of itself as a movement. Um, no, they just think they have the truth. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> they don't have a faith. They just have the truth, you know, and everybody else who doesn't is bad or, you know, benighted. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So the next book will be drunk was already kind of not great for my standing in that community. And I think the <laughs> next book will probably further diminish my standing, but there's going to be okay. sort of like a, like in praise of pleasure or in defense of pleasure. <laughs> something, something, like, something that. like that. Yeah. Like that. Wow. Well, this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation and uh, I thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to come on our podcast. Would it be okay if I, um, if I forward, cause I, I get a lot of questions from students about your, your stuff. If I just mm -hmm. forward the questions to you. Uh, yeah, absolutely. This semester, yeah. Cause I get, yeah, sure. they, they ask fantastic questions, like really yeah. quite interesting, but Anyway, okay. uh, this has been fantastic, and I very much look forward to um, to reading your your next book and your academic book as well. Uh, what what's the academic book going to be about? It's going to be about um, virtue ethics and oh, wow. moral moral perception, and this idea in virtue ethics that um, the the really crucial thing in kind of moral training or moral education is not. <clears throat> is not learning how to how to use maxims like a deontologist would want you to do or um, assign value to things in the world and do utilitarian calculus. Um, and it's not even about moments of conscious choice. It's about seeing, perceiving the world the right way. It's about building up habits of attention and perception that allow you to see the world in a better way. Um, so I'm very influenced by Iris. I don't know if you know Iris Murdoch's work. No. Um, she's, yeah, she's kind of early viewed as one of the early figures in the virtue ethics movement. Um, and she's just, she's got these brilliant essays on the importance of attention, like attending to the world properly, attending to other people, crucially um, for her, it's uh, really most important in the social world. And so I'm going to explore these arguments um, in the context of early Confucian thought. So I'm going to look at early Confucians through the lens of, um, you know, how they're, what they're trying to do is train your moral perception. And one of the tools that they use for doing that is literature, um, art more, more generally, but literature in particular. So, so how would that relate to, I'm just curious, like how would that relate to sort of Jean-Jacques Rousseau's like, because he, he very much in Emil and other works, he's he's sort of talking about how this this enlightenment idea from you know Kant and other people that like you can just sort of reason your way yeah. uh, into a moral life and and Rousseau thought no you've got to you've got to have a sentimental education as well you've got to tr yep. train the emotions so that so that basically you're not just like 
going through the motions because you've reasoned that this is the right thing to do. You actually feel like doing the right thing. Yeah, like, that's very much for Your sentimental ethics, yeah. education has been shaped. And so this has become like a pattern of behavior. So it's not just that you're being politically correct in a particular motion. For instance, like it's not just that you're being politically correct by um, calling somebody by the pronouns that they prefer. It's that you respect this other human soul enough yeah. to sort of like go along with their self-conception and it's, yeah. it's so you're not going through the motions it's that it actually makes sense to you well of course i should you know if 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 my name is john faithful hammer but i like to go by jimmy well just fucking call me jimmy <laughs> like you yeah know? yeah and it's not yeah. it's not pro forma it's like well of course i should call him jimmy if that's what he likes you know is that, is yeah. that, what is the connection between those things? That's absolutely the difference between kind of um, rationalist enlightenment ethics, which tend to be the dominant ones in philosophy departments, for instance, um, and this alternate tradition that goes back to Aristotle, um, but that you can see also in European romantics. You see it in Rousseau, you see it in Schiller. So in Germany, you know, um, Friedrich Schiller, um, you see it in Nietzsche, uh, you know, people want to argue that Nietzsche is a virtue ethicist. So the idea that the important part of humans is not necessarily the, the empty rational part. It's the, it's the feelings. And, um, to be a good person means responding immediately and spontaneously. You know, it's related to way, right? It's yeah. immediately and spontaneously to the world in an appropriate way. That's what a virtue is, is the disposition to respond immediately and spontaneously in a morally appropriate way to a morally relevant situation. And yeah, your example of pronouns is a great example. So it would be the deontologist would say, you know, have some rule about it. The utilitarians, I don't know how they would handle that. You know, there's some value to be assigned to, um, respecting people and that's worth 10 <laughs> the amount of effort you have to expend is worth six so you should do it i don't know um but a virtue would say that no you train yourself to see people as they want to be seen yes. which is a which is a takes some work because you know this is where iris murdoch i think is brilliant um she's she she thinks that the problem we have as she's coming out of essentially a kind of Christian mystical background mixed with this Neoplatonism that, so I'm not fully on board metaphysically with her, but I think she's right that um, our central problem is that we see the world in this distorted, in this way that's distorted by our own selfishness and our own anxiety and glass stuff. Darkly. Yeah. And, <clears throat> yeah, and it's um, the task of seeing correctly, in her view, is is getting past that. And she thinks that art can help, really good art can help us do that. Um, nature, the natural world can help us to do that. She has this great line about how, you know, I'm sitting at my desk um, mulling over some wrong that was done to me by a colleague who doesn't sufficiently respect my work you know, didn't cite me or whatever. And I look out the window and there's a kestrel hovering <laughs> there. And suddenly, you know, this, this nature breaking through my 
my morbid thoughts and, you know, confronting me with a reality that is not me makes me now when I return to what I was thinking about, I'm like, Oh, that doesn't matter anymore. Um, so she thinks, you know, art, nature can do this for you, but the task is to, for her, it's very much social. You see other people with a kind of loving attention is, is, um, is what she Sounds wants. Beautiful. And she comes, I really she thinks it's beautiful. It's really beautiful. Yeah, it's beautiful. She's got, um, I can give you, there's a, a volume that's got her three most popular essays in it. That's great. Um, so that's the task is to, so yeah. So it, with the pronoun thing, it would just be that, you know, you've come to see people the way they see themselves and then you will just naturally and spontaneously address them and treat them and interact with them the way they want you to. Um, and it's not something you have to force or monitor yourself about. It you, don't, you don't even have to be you, convinced of the truth of their self-conception. You know, like, like it doesn't, right, it doesn't right. matter. Like you would just, you would just do that yeah. because that's like the decent kind thing to do. You know, it's, it's the loving attention. Yeah. And she, I mean, she has this optimism that I think is again, coming out of Christianity that, I think it comes out ultimately out of the Christian idea that we're all children of God and we all have this kind of uh, godliness in us. She thinks that if you look hard enough and, and rightly, you'll see worth in everyone and you'll come to see them the way they really are, which is, you know, is worth knowing. Um, and so it is a pretty, it's a beautiful vision. And I think it, um, there's something like it is going on in early Confucianism. So I'm going to, use early Confucianism as an example of what this kind of self-cultivation looks like in a culture that's very d- different from, you know, Oxford in the fifties or whatever, yeah. <laughs> Iris Murdoch's writing this stuff. But uh, I think has some more insights. I think that is such a timely book. I mean, that would be just because that's, you know, we definitely need more of that in this day and age, like for sure. Like we need yeah. more of people willing to sort of look with loving kindness on people that they might, that their PFCs might be very <laughs> inclined yeah. to dislike, yeah. you know? Right. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. fantastic. Anyway, have a wonderful day and a great weekend. Yeah, you too. And uh, um, I look forward to talking to you again in the future. Yeah. This <laughs> right. was a lot of fun. Take care. Thanks. Bye. Bye.